Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of The King. A king has no friends. Only followers and foe. A new chapter of my life has begun. As prince, I spent my days drinking, clowning. Now I find myself the king. Choose your steps wisely, dear brother. They have their own kingdoms behind their eyes. I need men around me I can trust. You are my friend. I will come with you. Now you will be watched over by an altogether different king. France is taunting us. They were my father's enemies, not mine. The screams of your men shall lull me to sleep at night. You will not topple this King Henry V of England you so underestimate. (laughs) Are you ready for what awaits us? War is bloody and soulless. This is how peace is forged. Do you feel a sense of achievement? Surrender to me! King of England. Are you scared? On me! Already I can feel the weight of this crown I wear. All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for The King, and the story is as follows. Young Henry V encounters deceit, war, and treachery after becoming King of England in the 15th century and the aftermath of his brother's death. The film is starring Timothy Chalamet, Joel Egerton, Sean Harris, Lily Rose Depp, Robert Pattinson, and Ben Mendelsohn. It is directed and written by David Michaud, and it is co-written by Joel Egerton. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. All right, everyone. So another week, another Netflix film here on the Next Best Picture podcast. This time it is The King, which premiered earlier this year at the Venice Film Festival. Um, And it is also starring internet darling Timothy Chalamet. Broadening his horizons a little bit here, taking on um, a very masculine role, probably uh, the most physically demanding role also that we have uh, seen him take on yet. How does he fare in The King, might you ask? Well, that is something that we are going to talk about along with some other things as well. Uh, Why don't we start off with Nicole? Nicole, what did you ultimately think of The King? So I was really excited about The King from basically the moment that it was announced. Um, The King, as you may know, is based very loosely on The Henriad, which is a collection of four plays by Shakespeare. Um, And 
the role of Prince Hal slash Henry V is a really interesting one that a lot of actors from, you know, Laurence Olivier to Kenneth Branagh to Tom Hiddleston have taken on. So I was super excited to see Timothy Chalamet, who I do think is really, really talented, um, take on a role like this and kind of put his own spin on it. And I got to see it at Film Fest 919, which I went to last month in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I was really happy that I got to see this on the big screen because it really is an epic film. Um, and I think that there's a lot that, you know, people who are fans of big medieval films or uh, things like Game of Thrones can can find a like in it. And I, you know, I was a little bit nervous going in because I as much as I love period drama, that also means that I can be quite picky about period drama, but I actually ended up really loving this one. And I really thought that, uh, it was a really good vehicle for Timothy Chalamet and had some really interesting things to say about power and, uh, corruption and thought it was really, you know, nice design all around. And I was, uh, started my rewatch of it earlier today. And I feel like it, it says how much I like it by the fact that I didn't get around to finishing it before right now, and I intend to finish it after we record. Cool. All right. Josh Parham, what about you? Well, I unfortunately have to report not being quite as enthusiastic about this movie. I think Um, I'm the most enthusiastic person about this movie, so it's fine. (laughs) Like literally on the planet Earth, probably. (laughs) Me and Timothy's mother. (laughs) I I will say this about the movie. I think it is very handsomely made. I think that the imagery and the filmmaking behind it is really strong. I think Chalamet gives a pretty good performance. It's not the best that we've seen from him, but I think he's pretty good in the film. I think ultimately where most of my issues for with this movie come from, though, is I really feel like this story didn't really provide a lot of great emotional connection for me. And Everything that was happening, I understood like where it was coming from just from a basic storytelling perspective, but the actual plight of this character never really had the gravitas that I think it was searching for, and I just never really found myself getting won over by it to the point where I think I really wanted to. So it's got all the elements necessary to make a compelling piece of cinema for me, but it just never really crossed the finish line for me entirely. And because of that emotional distance, I didn't really find myself getting into the movie that much. Okay. All right. I will preface by saying that I don't know what it is with me when it comes to um, old archaic themes that deal with power, betrayal, loyalty, and ascension and you know succession and things like that in terms of like a monarchy or whatever it is but i eat that stuff up same (laughs) if my uh, if my love for game of thrones was not apparent enough for people or the fact that my favorite movie of all time is the lord of the rings trilogy then you just don't know me well enough at this point to know that The themes that this movie deals with is stuff that I just cannot get enough of. I think it's mostly because what I sometimes keep coming back to and to why I always like stories like this is because it represents what is to me a simpler time, probably. 
and is dealing with um, these themes that I said before that really touch upon uh, human drama. Sometimes it is also um, sociopolitical, but most of it just does boil down to um, a character that we align with and go on a journey with, and he's having to deal with some very, very complex and tricky situations, and that's constantly what Hal finds himself in throughout this movie. He finds himself in situations where he's got to make uh, decisions regarding battle strategy. He's got to rely on um, the counsel of men who he distrusts and some men that he does trust and weighing each of their opinions on what to do and what's the best decision. He has to confront the fact that there's this perception of him as this like drunken whore, if you will, from the streets and the alleys. And, uh, you know, now he's the king and he's this young boy and, you know, he has to overcome that. And there's just something about the simplicity in that that I, I always gravitate towards. It's like though as if you're just taking the bare essentials of human drama and just stripping it down without the complexities of like technology of today or, you know, the way just we as people tend to think, which I think is, you know, sometimes not as blunt and overly complicated. So this is all short to say that the king already had a lot working in its favor for me. Now, all it needed to do then was take the story and tell it in a way that for me made complete sense. And then that is where the film lost me. Because <laughs> while the movie does make sense, and it's not like it's a hard movie to follow, this 140-minute movie, all I could think of every single time it edited from one scene to another, um, and certain scenes just went by too quickly or, you know, whatever it was, all I kept thinking was, my God, would this have been an amazing five-part miniseries. Like, this would have been incredible if it had more time to breathe. Or, hell, I mean, it's Netflix. Netflix just released The Irishman. Three and a half hours long, well, why the hell not just make this three hours, you know? <laughs> just go for it at that point if you're going to make yourself a medieval epic, you know? It did feel like it either needed to be, like, cut back to two hours or expanded to three and a half. No, if you're going to cut back to two hours, then, you know, you could, you'd have to take out some really, really essential stuff then at that point, I feel like. I, I, don't think it, I, I don't think cutting it down is the issue. I think it needed to be developed more because I'll, I'll give a great example of this. Robert Pattinson in this movie, <laughs> his performance in this is actually, to, you know, people laughed about it and made fun of it, you know, as evidence just, just right now to a certain extent at the mere mention of his name. But I actually think he was quite good in this. The problem is, is that he doesn't have enough screen time to really fully make an impact on the viewer, I don't think, as this menacing antagonist. I well, love him in this film, and like he's having such a year. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, to me, he is actually by far my favorite performance in the movie, and I, I think I would agree with you at least to a certain extent that he doesn't make a great impact as a villain of this movie. But I think just in terms of screen presence, he actually makes the most impact because he's really the only person who brings any life to this story. That was another issue I kind of had is that it's all so serious and dreary. And I get that that's the tone that the movie's going for, but I feel like even in Chalamet's performance, it's 
not a whole lot of variation. It's the same kind of like trying to be very serious and stoic, even in the beginning when you're supposed to see him as like this jovial, carefree person. He's still weighed down by the tense relationship with his father. And I feel like the movie just never gives you a break from that. And Robert Pattinson walks in with his, you know, long hair and crazy accent. And it's like, oh, this is something different. This is something now that's actually grabbing my attention. But let's not also forget, though, that Joel Egerton as uh, John Falstaff in this uh, has some uh, comic relief at points, you know, to kind of lighten the mood. But I mean, you know, Josh, to fix your issue to what you're saying there, if the movie was were just a little bit longer and had some extra added moments of levity uh, with some of those characters, it would have given you that break that you want in terms of the seriousness of the film. I'm telling you, this movie needed... I'm not saying I'm not saying it needed like, you know, 40 extra minutes or 60 extra minutes, but I I think another 20 uh, would have done the trick, to be honest with you. I agree, because I think that there are also opportunities like I really love Dean Charles Chapman in this movie as great example. Hal's like, yes, younger brother. And he does bring this lightness to it because literally Hal is, you know, comes onto the battlefield and like defeats this guy who's trying to like, you know, usurp their power and whatever. And his younger brother is just like, oh, my God, all they're going to talk about is you. This was supposed to be my battle. Like, and he's so funny because it's so real and so like an actual like petulant younger sibling. But and I just was sitting there like, oh, my God, so much of history was just like hot headed young men. <laughs> but, that, but, the, but the point being, though, is that he then just disappears and they give you an off screen explanation. Yeah. And I, I was disappointed because I'm like. I was really liking the relationship that they were establishing there with Dean Charles Chapman and um, Timothy Chalamet. And I, I was really enjoying that chemistry between the two, even though they don't look like brothers at all. I, more, <laughs> I mean, other than like, I don't know, like longish hair, like, but I wanted more of him with both of his siblings. Like, especially I thought Thomas and Mackenzie and her like tiny, tiny yeah. bit as his sister, the Queen of Denmark was so good. And they actually did look a bit more like siblings. Yes. Agreed. But there. I thought that their dynamic was so nice. And it also like, I felt like those little bits that he has with her show such a different side of the character of Hal and that really kind of won me over to him that like before he goes off and does all this serious war waging or whatever, you're like, Oh, okay. Like he genuinely has a really good relationship with his younger sister. Like that feels redeeming, especially cause it starts out with him just like hanging out in some brothels and stuff. Like, so I kind of wish that we'd gotten more of Thomas and McKenzie. I also wish we got more of uh, Ben Mendelsohn in the beginning, to be honest with you, too. Yeah, yeah I, w I was actually going to say that I really feel like what we really need more of was just more of his interaction with his family, because that really provides the context for a lot of the initial conflict that he's really uh, wrestling with. And I feel like we get the very bare minimum of, of that, but we really needed more to help us get this connection as to what his emotional state really is as he ascends the throne. And I felt like that was a very uh, important element that was missing for the rest of the story. I kind of wish that they had just done an adaption of Henry IV and kind of dealt with, you know, not dealt with him once he becomes king as much, but more on like his relationship with Falstaff and the fact that he is this like, heir to the throne who'd rather just go out to the brothels and hang out with his buddies but has see now I, I thought the relationship between him and Falstaff was well developed in this actually I thought it was but I wanted more of a before because I feel like part of 
part of the whole thing between him and Falstaff is the fact that like their relationship shifts so much once he starts, you know, once he becomes king and gains power. Yeah, I think the way they only displayed in this is basically like, oh, you've been preoccupied and you've forgotten all about me. And that's like kind of it. Exactly. Whereas. Yeah. And it's a very different Falstaff than is written in Shakespeare, which is interesting. The character is, he's not like a general. He's not, you know, tactical. He's kind of gets very much left behind by Hal. And there's like some real heartbreak in it. And I I did like what they did in the movie. It's just, it's very different. So it's a bit jarring for anyone who's maybe familiar with the role. Um, But I think it works a lot better for Joel Egerton, who I think is very good in this film, but would not have been very good as the traditional um, carousing kind of just comedy Falstaff character. In terms of the adaptation, the thing that I actually really do like about this a lot is that it does kind of take a little bit of a page out of uh, the Game of Thrones book and just in regards to how it writes its own, uh, its dialogue, if you will. Um, it's not Shakespearean dialogue. And I mean, listen, I could have watched the movie with Shakespearean dialogue. There have been some great movies made with Shakespearean dialogue. Don't get me wrong there. Um, but this is kind of, for me at least, uh, filling a bit of an empty void in my life ever since Game of Thrones went off the air and also took <laughs> quite a bit of a nosedive. And there were some really, really uh, great scenes where, uh, like, I'll give a great example. There's a scene where, um, you know, Hal uh, tells, uh, well, I don't want to give the spoiler away, but tells two people very close to him, you know, uh, you'll be preoccupied in the morning. Well, why is that uh for tomorrow you will be hanging. And I'm just like, oh, savage, you know? Yeah. Like, amazing. I, um, I read this article, the the Slate review of the film by Isaac Butler, and they talked about the fact that, and I thought this was a great point, that this kind of samples as liberally from Shakespeare's Henriad as Shakespeare liberally sampled from his own sources like Shakespeare was kind of known for like taking a story or a history or whatever and being like let me take the bits that work for me and this is very much what this film does from its source materials it takes the bits that work and kind of reworks it for a modern audience and I think that it's a really interesting adaptation I mean I do want to say like to any you know student who is assigned uh any of the Henry plays do not take this as your source material and answer, you know, quiz on it. Um, but I think that they really make it modern and, and the use of language and the, you know, some of that. God, there's there's some really great lines in it. Well, what did it say? They say a king has uh, um, king has no friends. King only has followers or foe. Yeah. And I, I like that that is ultimately like the message of the movie is this is a guy yeah. who is inheriting his father's um, mistakes. And he is doing everything in his power to be a good king. And I was really on board with this because I'm like, wow, how often do we like kind of see a, a story like this where um, they really are trying to be like the good king, but they're dealing with uh, things out of their control, not from literally a direct antagonist. Like I said, Robert Pattinson doesn't really get introduced until like, pretty much the third act of the film, to be honest with you. But he's just dealing with the weight of all these issues that were caused by his father's own battles and such. And I, I just really, really liked that at the end of the day, this was a character who wanted to do the right thing. And the more and more that he rules, the more um, pieces of him kind of get chipped away to the point that 
where before he would grant people mercy, he goes from, you know, being a merciful and just king to basically telling his men, kill all the prisoners because he's just he's just had it, you know, at a certain point. And I like that character uh, progression. I, I like that that character does go on somewhat of a dark journey where by the end of the film, then all this poor guy wants is he just wants someone to tell him the truth and treat him like a human being instead of this king that needs to be feared and respected and so on and so forth. He he just wants a real human connection with someone the same way he has one with Falstaff, you know? And I think that it is such an interesting piece because I agree. Like, I think that the, the most fascinating part of it is kind of how it looks at how this idea, you know, idealistic young ruler who is determined to like right the wrongs of the past generation ends up swayed by all the paranoia and the manipulation and the power and the fear that he has. And, you know, so much of this is kind of set in motion by what his advisors are telling him that he only later finds out maybe that's not true. And I think that it's such an interesting, you know, thing. And especially to think about in our time, we're about to have an election and, you know, even if if a Democratic candidate is to win, they're going to inherit all these evils that have occurred in the past years. And like, what what does that do to a person who's in power? And I just I feel like it has a lot to say, not just, you know, in its historical context, but even in our world today. Hmm. I, I, I get all of that. I do. I understand all that is in the movie. But I think for me. I just felt like it was painting with very broad strokes on all of those themes. I didn't really feel like it really was going deep into the nuances about any of the things that it was working with. And I think in particular, when it comes to like his decision to go into war with France and everything that motivated that, that was actually something that really bothered me because when we do get that reveal at the end, I have to admit it, it did surprise me. But it surprised me because it was a reveal that was so incredibly obvious that when they didn't reveal it immediately, I thought, oh, well, I guess that's not going to happen because there's no way this film would actually expect us to think that that would be a twist that we wouldn't see coming. Like they wouldn't save it for the end because they think we'd be that stupid. And when it happened, it that really kind of bothered me. I'm going to be honest with you. See, like, I, I, I guess maybe because I've seen so many of these types of films and I just know how this style of storytelling is done. Listen, you cast Sean Harris to be your villain. <laughs> you don't cast him for anything else. Not with a voice and a presence like that. You know, you don't cast Sean Harris to be the nice character to... You know, soothe you to sleep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it's not even just necessarily his casting. It's just the way that that entire inciting incident is set up to begin with doesn't ever feel like it's coming from a place that's trying to embed itself in this conspiracy that's nudging these political forces to go a certain way. I, and I thought it made perfect, complete sense. Um, I, so much so that when it did happen, I wasn't surprised by it. I actually did expect it. And it goes back to what I was saying before in regards to how it boiled the story down more to a personal matter and an inner turmoil that this character himself has been going through. And how, to Nicole's point, the manipulation and how 
you know, even though you may wear the crown, there are just so many other people uh, around you that are always jockeying for power and lying to you at every turn for their own taste of that power to get what they want so that they can serve their own interests. And listen, at this point, we've probably revealed maybe too much via spoilers, or at least I have in this case. I mean, case. it is based but... <laughs> on like a 400-year-old play. Yeah. That no one has probably read because, you know, let's face it. Uh, they <laughs> just brought a movie of it. Thank you very much. I'm just saying, you know, a lot of people don't read Shakespeare nowadays. It's sad, but it's true. Which, by the way, the Brennan movie is better than this movie. I'm going to say. The, I will actually agree with you on that one, I Josh. Mean, I will I give you that. If anyone's like has watched The King, would recommend going and watching The Hollow Crown uh, versions of this, which have Tom Hiddleston in the role, because those are also very good and kind of similar but use the actual Shakespearean dialogue so if anyone's like looking to get out of reading it for a class that's where you should go not here <laughs> no and and another thing that I actually want to say about the like personal story that this movie really wants to tell I agree with you that that is a compelling idea that this movie works with I think a lot of that does go by the wayside though once the battles in France happen and I think that's when the movie to me starts to become more about these strategies and how he, uh, Henry wants to like actually prove himself as a leader. And that to me just wasn't quite as interesting. I, I think as a war movie, it takes a little bit more of a macro view of things and that's just never really as appealing to me. And I think a lot of the really rich thematic material that it had to work with earlier on does fall by the wayside a little bit for me by that point. I have mixed feelings on the final battle in this movie because on one hand, I liked that it felt different at times. And I say that because um, this is not like a bloody battle. Um, we've seen countless bloody battles, uh, Braveheart, uh, most famously and recently, uh, like Battle of the Bastards and Game of Thrones. And there is a lot of in this sequence mm -hmm. <laughs> that is borrowed from Battle of the Bastards, might I add. Um, we saw some of this also in another Netflix film too, Outlaw King, uh, which yep. uh, had bloodier and more, I think, intense battles in this movie had. But what this battle had that I've never actually seen before uh, was a lack of blood and instead just really highlighted the mud. Um and I, I really like that every fight in this is not overly choreographed or anything like that. It feels scrappy. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that, you know, people often don't understand that armor weighs so much. And this movie, I think, fully understands that and really commits to it. So when you see guys just taking maybe only seven swings of their sword at each other, they are tired and it's like the only reason why scrawny little tiny timothy chalamet can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe against someone that clearly looks like you know from a physical standpoint could beat the crap out of him but he doesn't because timothy's got probably the you know the endurance and the stamina and the speed and agility i don't know but whatever they were trying to sell i guess with him you know from a physical standpoint but either way though I like that this movie at least commits to that. It did make those sequences feel somewhat unique, even though clearly shot-wise, there's even one shot that's literally directly ripped from Battle of the Bastards that just, like, annoyed the crap out of me. The overhead. You know, it, it's so, so apparent. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of digging it, too. I really like the battle sequences in this, and I think that's for two reasons. One is that they do feel very 
realistic in that like war at that time was not like you know marching in some nice uniforms like it becomes you know a couple of hundred years later like it was mud and a lot of hand-to-hand combat and a lot of like rolling around on the ground and I think that it does that really well and I think that it kind of you know part of part of the Battle of Agincourt was the fact that it was a muddy field and like they really show that and I also like that like there's I think that they're trying to make a point about war and that like it's not glorious and it's not this great place to go prove yourself like in the beginning his younger brother thinks it is and I think that by having some of these action sequences honestly like there's there's a couple where I laughed because it just was like it kind of looked like watching, like, you know, just some young boys who got in a fight throwing down. But I think that that's part of the yeah. point is that, mm-hmm. like, that was th- – these are countries being, like, you know, the fates of thousands of people are being decided by young boys who are wrestling out on a field. And I think that that was a really compelling part of it for me was the, like, there is something so crazy to think about the fact that, like, for so long that's how – things were run and how things were decided and that you know if you were smart enough to take off your armor on a muddy field you could win a whole bunch of land for yourself i mean nicole like the fact that so many of these uh major major high stake intense squabbles uh between two kingdoms could be decided by one-on-one fights yeah i represent my army you represent yours our armies don't need to die today only one of us which once again taken from Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, taken from a lot of places. Well, I think Game of Thrones also takes it in some ways from Shakespearean stuff. I'm just saying, Game of Thrones has made it very popular nowadays. That's all. Um, <laughs> but in any event, though, uh, you know, what it really just comes down to for me, though, was was I invested in uh, Henry or Hal's uh, story? And the answer is yes, I actually was, even though there were a lot of things happening around him from a storytelling standpoint that I kept coming back to as this is underdeveloped. Why is it underdeveloped? Well, I keep cutting away to it to get to this plot point and this and that. This is happening too fast. Oh, I didn't feel like we had enough time to ruminate on this a little bit more. But all the expected plot beats were there. Um, I just kept coming back to over and over and over again, there isn't enough time. And for some reason, this movie is edited in such a way where I feel like there was more footage. And they totally could have gotten away with it, too, because once again, this is a Netflix watch. And it's not uncommon for medieval epic films to be stretching the three-hour time limit. This movie doesn't even cross two and a half hours, so I don't know why they couldn't just do it. Well, I was just going to say that I don't know if I necessarily think that it needed to be longer, but I think it needed to be refocused. I think maybe giving us more time in the beginning to set up him as a character and his emotional state may have been better time served rather than maybe some of the more extended battle scenes, which are well done, but I don't think are nearly as interesting as the more emotional stuff that it's working with earlier on. Mm. I also just wanted to say, Matt, you mentioned Outlaw King before, and last year Netflix put out Outlaw King, which is another kind of big battle war epic medieval movie. And I think that this, in terms of, you know, Netflix 
putting out war movies is a big improvement on that. And I liked Outlaw King, I think, more than most people, once again. But that I felt like Outlaw King is not good. (laughs) Well, there were, (laughs) I didn't say I liked it a lot. I said I liked it more than most people. I compared, compared to this, this to me is a better this to me is yep. a better movie with a better story yes. and better cohesive storytelling. Outlaw King is just a mess. <laughs> Outlaw King had some really nice sequences and like Yes, that I agree like with. Battles, but there was no emotional stakes. The nope. story was just like not there. And nope. like this at least there, you know, there were some emotional stakes. The acting was good enough to really like reel me in. The characters were interesting, and they're like even if the plot had some issues, there was a plot. So I just think that like this is such a vast improvement in terms of like epic medieval movies that we've seen. Yeah, even if it's you know it's so easy to compare it to something like Game of Thrones, but I also think that something like that it's it's a hard comparison in some ways because obviously they had like so much time to build all of that up. And this was trying to cram it into a movie for better or for worse. Need to be a miniseries. Yeah. I, I would have loved for this to be been like a, you know, a BBC miniseries style, like, like you said, like a five or six episode thing. But I think that they did a good job of trying to, to, you know, cut in the most essential parts while still giving you some nice battle sequences and uh, making sure that the character relationships were there, even if they could have been, better developed and i think that right you know i think i really appreciated too that they got some humor into it because mm. and i've seen so many people being like i'm surprised at how funny this is but i'm like it's shakespeare shakespeare is all just like dick jokes like and we certainly get enough of those in that film <laughs> like, <laughs> last two notes i have uh here um i need to need to need to need to highlight uh two things uh, because these were two things that uh, I'll make another comparison to Outlaw King again. Uh, there were these are two things that did not stand out to me in Outlaw King that did stand out to me in this, and this actually helped my enjoyment of this movie so much more. And that is the cinematography by Adam Arkapa and the score by Nicholas Patel. So good. I really, really, really like the score in this movie I a lot love that it has like every so often it has these like folky bits to it like whenever they're in the little village it would have like suddenly a little bit of a different feel to it to denote that like now we're not amongst the royals we're just amongst the people and i thought that that was so nice and something that you don't always get in a score like this and i it it, it's one of my favorite scores of the year thus far, I think, to be honest. Mine too. I, I thought the choir moments maybe came out a little bit too, uh, like, yeah. oh, you know, like kind of out of nowhere at times. But other than that, I mean, I, I was listening to it actually as a standalone listen on its own earlier. And I, yeah, I, I'm with you, Nicole. It's actually one of my favorite scores I've heard uh, this year, even though from I don't think for most people um, it'll either A, register or B, considered memorable josh i'm actually curious to hear uh your thoughts on that actually oh you guys are gonna hate me yeah i kind of figured yeah you know i'm sorry (laughs) and and i and it's uh nicholas bertel right yeah it is i i don't know i i just found the score to be so monotone and there were stretches where i was just thinking like has this score ever stopped because it just seemed like it was doing the same notes over and over again. There I, is a main theme that uh, does have a couple of renditions, and it, it, it does play continuously throughout the movie to a certain extent. I, I get what you mean by that. Yeah, I, I, the score is not terrible, but 
I think considering Nicholas Bertel and some of the amazing music that he's delivered in the past, I have to admit to being a little underwhelmed by it, and I really wasn't that big of a fan of it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, Adam Arcapado, his cinematography in, in this, I, I like the stark contrast and the soft uh, lighting that he uses. It's definitely become like a signature of his that he has done in other movies uh, more colorfully in something like Macbeth um, and, uh, you know, working on a bigger scale in something like Assassin's Creed. But uh, even though the king does not have what I would consider to be, quote unquote, like one perfect shot or film Twitter, like, screen get, screen grab, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of shots necessarily. Um, the aesthetic of the film always pleased me uh, constantly throughout. I just have to give a shout-out to um, Fiona Crombie's production design, which I thought was really solid in this. And obviously, like, I'm a little bit biased because I interviewed her last year for the podcast. But I just thought it, it did a really nice job of evoking, like, some different atmospheres like while also being like i want to say like appropriately dreary like we needed something that timothy's like broody prince didn't feel out of place in and i felt like she did a really good job with that um and i just i loved all of the um like some of the stuff in the french court as well i just thought was really beautiful um yeah and I thought the costumes were nice, too. They, I mean, they weren't, like, standout, except for, like, whatever it was that they always had on Thomas and McKenzie's head, because those were interesting. Um, <laughs> I was like, is that what they wore in Denmark? Really? But I, I thought, like, it was very adequately designed all around. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in this kind of a movie... If you don't nail costumes and production design, yep. you're 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 messing up, <laughs> you know, because there, there have been just so many films that have done it. Um, it's like it, it was like what we were talking about a few weeks ago about the costumes and like Jojo Rabbit. How many mo- movies have we seen done with World War Two and what could possibly be done, you know, to differentiate it and make it really stand out? Um I, I, I'll admit there was nothing in this movie that stood out to me about production designer costumes because um, I've seen it before. It's good, though, because and the reason why it's good is because never once does it take me out of the movie and make me go, yep. oh, that doesn't look right. So often whenever I watch these things, there's something in it that I'm like, oh, that doesn't look right. Or like, oh, you're 200 years too early or like, you know, something like that. And this I didn't have any of those moments. So I was very pleased with that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I think all those elements are fine. I think I have to admit that I didn't really see them as exceptional, but for the setting that they were trying to uh portray in the film, I thought that they were adequate. Yeah. What I will always give um what I will always give praise to when making a film like this is that it's incredibly hard uh yeah. to make lived in sets from this era um, with detail, with extras in the background doing something that is also of the time period. And, you know, that to me is the part of it that um, always I kind of come back to, which is like how incredibly difficult it is for even the smallest details, Um, even if if they're not um, like a lot of the details in this are background details, you know, and that, and that's like to your point, Josh, why to me it doesn't necessarily stand out. So in a way, it's kind of like highlighting what is great editing. Great editing is invisible. Yeah. And if the production design and costume design don't stand out, and instead you just feel like you're 
living in the environment and you're never pulled out of that um, and it's quote unquote invisible, then it's doing its job. And I, I think with this, it, it does its job just perfectly fine. So uh, final thoughts on The King. Uh, Josh, I'll pass it over to you. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention in regards to The King? Um, no, I think we pretty much got everything that I wanted to say. I, I think it's a movie that has all of these elements that I recognize make it somewhat engaging. And I, and I understand that there are things in it that you can certainly point to as being things that you can really connect with on an emotional level. I think that just for me, there was just something about the way the story was constructed, the way that they decided to focus their time that just didn't really pull me in in that way. And it is a nicely made film with good elements in it, but it is kind of missing a very important element to me to really get me invested in these characters. And even though those elements are kind of there on the surface, it didn't really go that deep enough for me to really get into it. Stop the fucking charade. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) I mean, that's the one wonderful thing about it. Yes. (laughs) I saw people taking that moment in the movie and putting it on like YouTube and shit. And I was like, yes. Oh, it's a wonderful meme. Yes. Oh, it's fantastic. I've already used it. (laughs) (laughs) My caption was uh, when Bohemian Rhapsody won the best sound editing Oscar. Oh my God. I saw that. Stop the fucking Gerard. That's my favorite use I've seen of it yet. No joke. (laughs) Yeah, Josh, it was mine too. I I saw it get used a couple of times with some people um, in a bunch of different scenarios, but yours was by far my favorite. (laughs) I'll take that victory. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know what? Actually, I'll use that as a good segue just really quick into my own final thought. um, And then, Nicole, I'll have you uh, take us home there. Um, I, I, I always say all the time, whenever there is a big battle scene in any of these movies... You know, Brad Pitt's done it. Chris Pine has done it. Mel Gibson has done it. Kit Harrington has done it. You always got to do the rousing speech. And I knew it was coming for Timothy. And I was like, I don't know if he can do it. His voice might crack for all I know. I don't know. <laughs> and he's getting up in front of everyone. And he's all like, for England. And I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah, I got goosebumps right now. He is doing oh my it. God, and he's walking through them all. I, I, I was like, you know what? If somebody gave that speech to me and I heard that, yeah, I'd be ready to go into battle. Absolutely. Let's, do, let's throw down. I was like, Timothy, where do you want me to go? <laughs> exactly. So um, in that regard, um, I, I, I do give Timothy props because uh, he is someone that upon just looking at him, I would not think that he would be capable of pulling a role like this off. And I know if it's not everybody's t- favorite type of performance, it is very brooding, very serious. And uh, like, I get it. I get it's not like everyone's cup of tea, but I didn't even think that he could do it, if I'm being completely honest with you guys. And for me... Um, I still found him to be as captivating and as intense and as interesting of an actor as I've seen him in any of his other projects before. So bravo to you, Timothy Chalamet, for subverting my own expectations. Nicole? Yeah, this has convinced me that I like really need to see him as Hamlet. I I, I was going to say Prince Hal or, you know, Henry the V, 
is not an easy role for an actor to take on in that it's been played by Laurence Olivier, it's been played by Kenneth Branagh, it's been played by Tom Hiddleston not that long ago. And I really applaud Timothy for taking it on and really making it his own. And I was really impressed by the fact that he has this almost like James Dean-like charisma to him in this film. Like, there's a weird sort of charisma, but it almost feels a little bit menacing by the end of the film. And I was so impressed that someone could do that with a bowl cut. No, Nicole, Nicole, uh, Nicole, stay up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, truly, I really was like, okay, I don't, I think that this performance really convinced me that like, you know, his earlier roles, those weren't flukes. He is honest to God, that talented. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what kind of projects he takes on in the future. And I Dune! Dune! Oh my God. I mean, and I'm like thrilled to see him play, you know, classic literature's best sad rich boy uh, in Little Women. (laughs) But I I don't think this film is exceptional. It's not going to make my top 10. But I do think it's one that I'm going to continue, you know, watching probably several more times over the years to come. And I think that it may end up being one of those films that I, like, put on while I'm doing stuff. Because it's got some really nice moments. And I think it's... um, it's it's something that I, I really just urge people to watch, especially because it's on Netflix. Like you don't even have to go anywhere to see it. Like um, most people have it, you can essentially watch it for free. So I think everybody should you know give it a chance. All right, all right, Josh, you gave it a chance. <laughs> what grade did you give it? <laughs> I ended up at a six out of ten with this one. I no, that's not so bad. Yeah, I mean it's not a bad movie. I, I don't think it is. It's just one that didn't really get me emotionally invested in it. And that's the biggest knock I have against it. But, you know, it's got handsome production values. I do think Chalamet and the rest of the cast is pretty good. Like it's, it's got engaging elements in it, but it is kind of just missing the core that really would push it into full recommendation for me. Um, I will keep us going because I have a strong, strong, strong feeling we are going to go in numerical order here. Um, I am a seven out of 10. Okay. Nicole? So I was actually in between uh, two grades, and I've decided to go ahead with, like, my gut reaction after I saw the film for the first time, which was an 8 out of 10. Yeah. Like I said before, it's not a perfect film, but I think it's, like, a really well-made film and has really good performances and took on some really lofty material and made something kind of new and uh, worthy out of it. So... That's my, yeah, so that's 8 out of 10. Okay. And then as far as, like, the Oscar potential is concerned with this one here, um, you know, there there is a lot of potential. You know, there's a lot of stuff there. Don't get me wrong, you know. It's, like, pretty much every single tech of this movie, for the most part, sounds, score, production design, cinematography, costume design, makeup and hairstyling, it's all there, but... It ain't going to get a single nomination. No, because Netflix has like 18 other movies they need to focus on right now. <laughs> you know, you know what, you know what, in what world this would get those nominations? Mm. If the movie got um, higher, a higher reaction, yeah. you know, uh, than what it has gotten. I mean, you know, reactions are a little, uh, I would say mixed positive. Yeah. In order for those to ever really translate in an Oscar year, um, especially with a movie, like I said, like this, where 
The production design and the costumes, uh, which is usually like a category where uh, these movies tend to shine, um, they're, they're really taken for granted. And they're taken for granted, especially if your movie is not a critical top contender that's considered literally one of the best films of the year by a consensus. So if you're kind of in that average territory, I, I don't think that this typically tends to break through. That well, it's I don't see it doing anything at the Oscars. I do think that it's not out of the realm of possibility that it would get some nominations at some critics. Oh, see now, I don't even think critics would do it. I think guilds would probably. Yeah, though. guilds actually is probably more likely. Um, particularly, I don't know what it qualifies for in terms of like you know some of those international awards and stuff like that. Well, well, just just for uh, context, there actually, um, it is an Australian film. Yeah. And it did actually receive quite a bit of uh, nominations, actually, from the AACTA uh, for really everything. Okay. Uh, Text, screenplay, acting, directing, picture, you know. So, you know, it's got that. But, I mean. completely forgotten. (laughs) eh, I think think if you ask a lot of people, they will say it will be completely forgotten, to be honest with you. What I mean is it's not going to be one of those things that literally didn't, you know, get a single bit of recognition from anyone yeah i also think a lot of times with movies like this that usually get recognized for their like production and costume design i think something that you also find as a trend with that is a lot of those movies tend to be very female focused because that gives you a lot of opportunity at least with the big dresses and i was just thinking there just aren't enough women for them to get a costume award nomination. <laughs> exactly. It's a bunch of men in kind of very similar looking drab to one another. And that just doesn't usually impress um, people when they want to nominate uh, these types of movies for those awards. Yeah, exactly. So don't be surprised when the king pulls a donut on nomination morning, even though um, me personally, um, I, 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 I might be putting Nicholas Patel in my own personal lineup for score. I don't know. We'll see. He'll be in mine. <laughs> yeah. My lineup is way too crowded right now. <laughs> I was going to say, we'll see how the rest of the year shakes out uh, to see how it all goes down. Josh Parham, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Nicole? I am at Nicole Ackman 16. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The King here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon for $1 minimum a month. You will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. 
Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.